Welcome to the ABR podcast, where some of Australian Book Review's contributors read their articles or discuss them with ABR staff. My name is Peter Rose and I'm the editor of ABR. If you enjoy these podcasts, think about subscribing to the magazine. Those 25 and under can do so for as little as $25 for the online version or just $60 for print plus online. This year, we look forward to bringing you lively conversation, some of ABR's best monthly journalism, and also a few new features, including Critic of the Month, where I and the other ABR editors will be in conversation with some of your favourite contributors. As always, we begin the year with the Peter Porter Poetry Prize, the oldest of ABR's three literary prizes. First presented in 2005, the Porter Prize is now one of the world's leading competitions for a new poem written in English. It's worth a total of $10,000, of which the overall winner will receive $6,000. This year, our judges are Lachlan Brown, Felicity Plunkett and Dan Disney, winner of the 2023 Porter Prize. We thank all three of them. The judges chose the five shortlisted poems from a field of more than 1,000 entries. ABR's three prizes are international, and we're delighted that poets from 21 different countries entered the Porter Prize this year. The five shortlisted poems appear in the January-February 2024 issue of ABR, which is of course on sale now. The official Porter Prize ceremony will take place via Zoom at 6pm on Tuesday the 23rd of January. We hope you can join us. To register your interest, please rsvp at australianbookreview.com.au. Before the shortlisted poets read their poems, let's hear from our judges. Here's what they have to say about the overall field. Arriving at this shortlist, each of us was reading for language that was concise and perspicacious, language that arrested our attention in ways that immediately rewarded rereading. In uniquely different ways, each shortlisted poem demonstrates compelling awareness of the function not only of the poetic line, but more broadly of syntax, grammar, diction, and the power relations transmitted therein. You can read the judges' full report and their notes on the individual poems on the ABR website. Our first shortlisted poet is Judith Nungala Crispin. Judith is a poet and visual artist of Indigenous and mixed descent. She has published two collections of poetry. She won the 2020 Blake Prize for Poetry and has been shortlisted for various other prizes. This is Judith Nangala Crispin. I'll be reading for you my poem of the dead woman, which is dedicated to Marvin Bell, my dear friend, the American poet who passed away a couple of years ago. Poem of the Dead Woman The dead woman rides a motorcycle out of Ord River Valley beyond sand plains into the serpentine Bungle Bungle Ranges, and the black sun is over her. 
A white dog leans against her back, motorcycle goggled, his ears flying. He holds himself like a gunslinger, muscling into oncoming wind. They carve a single-wheeled track into the bulldust of a 360-million-year-old cone-cast plateau. And as she rides, the unveiled land reveals itself in lucid detail. Termite nests and grevilleas. Liverstoner palm trees stand like thin gods between rock walls burnished by dusk. They pass into the valley of the shadow. The dead woman has never once said what she intended. Before I knew you, she tells the dog, I walked the luminous earth. But I am in country now, and country is in me. The dog has no opinion on this, or any other matter. The motorcycle bears them north, over monsoonal savannas, into deeper valleys, studded with orchids and ferns, into the shelter of steep red cliffs. The dead woman introduces herself to the country she rides through. She surrenders her name to silver-leaved bloodwoods, acacias and rough-leaf range gums, and she tells them how she crossed the desert 36 times alive and once dead, how she stockpiled electrolytes and anti-venom, water bladders, multi-tools and rope, how the dog survived a king brown bite and the hungry gaze of eagles, how she was run over in a remote desert town by a single mum shouting at the kids in a gigantic SUV. Grey nomads do not notice the dead woman passing. They're cooking sausages on Webers outside their camping trailers or adjusting solar panels for satellite TV. She does not stop at the ranger's office for permits, kayak hire or a personal locator beacon. At the bus bay, disembarking hikers upload selfies under banded domes lifting 300 metres above the grasslands like titanic beehives. And the tour guide explains how their tangerine stripes are iron and manganese, but the grey ones are cyanobacteria, ancient organisms living in a surface-deep layer of clay. They have colonised multitudes of domes, holding them in their forms for millions of years. The slightest touch could break their living skin, crumbling these sandstone minarets back into dust. The dead woman introduces herself to the cyanobacteria, to the iron and manganese. She claims no ownership of this or any other land. She is tolerated like seeds of subtropical trees, carried inland on the feet of birds and dropped where they will not grow. Country knows this, but is too polite to say so. The dead woman's panniers carry journals filled with coloured pencil drawings, maps and pressed plants. There are poems. There are notes on the movements of honey eaters, wood swallows and white quilled rock pigeons. The journals have many missing pages, torn out, loosed in wind like pollen or white nocturnal moths. The dead woman knows some stories can't be spoken. Over the still world... Gouldian finches turn kaleidoscopic arcs. Their bone-curved wings are written with the mystery of seed, yinindi and mulga, seeds of the ground, sky seed. 
The dog and his dead companion pass in chasms where waterfalls cascade down sheer rock between fig vines and moss. Snappy gums regard themselves in the surface of mirrored pools. The dog shouts at lizards skittering over shiny river stones, dunarts and planigales in the hollows. A nail-tail wallaby crashes through the bush where cliffs cycle through their colour spectra at dusk, gold to purple, and a baritone wind explores reefs of an inland sea. The dead woman has finally understood that this is not a dress rehearsal. She dismisses inner whispers that it's already too late, that her efforts can wait for some future life. She sees who it is that whispers. She is no longer an animal with an angel inside her chest, the animal rejecting the angel, the angel always looking for an escape. The dead woman holds her arms up into the sky. How pale this sky is, she says to no one in particular. How pale. She slows the motorcycle where palm trees drop to rock holes and the cliffs glow as if lit from the inside. Looking down from a tourist helicopter, you'd see an elliptical plateau 7.5 kilometres wide, surrounded by domes. This is the remnant of Piccaninny Crater, the seventh gate, where the star fell down. The dog clambers over boulders tossed by the meteorite. He is a whiteness on incarnadine stone. All the creeks and pools are silver on night's border. Ursa Minor, Centaurus and Crux are sparks on the watered roots of trees. She hears palm trees converse in their slow vegetal language. Crows and their dark spies are signalling across the gorge. Their cries sound like machine guns or breaking glass. And the dead woman answers, My crow! My black-breasted buzzard. Her hair is dark and bright in the sky. Her rivers flow from these ranges to the sea, returning again to mountains in deep subterranean veins. She is a circulatory system, a new topography of light. The dead woman is not looking for a door. She will not get drunk and join the Scientologists, won't search for answers in grimoires, tarot cards, or wormholes, or in boxing matches, or late-night confessions with online language bots. She has already written her history in blood and milk and venom. She perches above the rock holes like a kingfisher, waiting for the flash of something silver in the deep. There are mountains and rivers beneath the dead woman's skin. Her breath drifts over them. Natalie Damjanovic Napoleon's work has appeared in Mianjin, Cordite, Australian Poetry Journal and Writer's Digest. Natalie has a new collection out with the excellent Life Before Man imprint. It's titled if there is a butterfly that drinks tears. Hello, my name is Natalie Damjanovic Napoleon. What business does a Croatian-Australian have in erasing the white Australia policy, you may ask? Well, the policy had wider restrictions than people may realise, 
and the categories of who's considered white in Australia have changed significantly over time. The main targets and sustained victims of the White Australia policy were, according to historian Anna Clark, coloured peoples from Asia, the Pacific and Indian colonies that allegedly threatened Australia's whiteness. Yet several sources note the damage of this policy as it extended to Southern Europeans as well, those being Drapach, Shutalo and Tavan. As historian John Stratton clarifies, in the period up to and around World War II, white implied a reductive understanding of whiteness and a particular culture often thought of as British culture. He further explains that whiteness is not a stable category, but that it changes with time. An idea which I'm interested in as a non-fiction erasure poet who works with historical documents about marginalised communities. The White Australia policy never clearly designated who was considered to be white, with the latter understanding being a white were preferred immigrants who were British, Northern European, German, French and Scandinavian, as noted by Stratton, which means numbers of Croatian immigrants prior to World War II were limited by the policy, and that can be noted in the low immigration statistics at the time. Under the White Australia policy, up until around 1945, according to Stratton, Southern Europeans were considered non-whites and were excluded from the white race. With the xenophobia and racism towards Croatians and Yugoslavs entrenched by this policy and contributing to the marginalisation of the community, I believe, for decades to follow. What's so powerful about erasure poetry is that it can take an existing document and create a new narrative, in effect enabling us to have a conversation with the past and adding to the palimpsest of history. I believe the policy contributed to the race riots in Kalgoorlie of 1919 against the Greeks and again in 1934 where British Australians burnt, destroyed and looted the homes of Croatians and Italians, as well as the unjust internment during World War I of around 700 Croatians, mostly from the goldfields. I find it encouraging that the Peter Porter Poetry Prize recognises erasure poetry as a valid form that speaks to history in this way. Here's my poem, Immigration Triction, an erasure of the Immigration Restriction Act of 1901, commonly known as the White Australia Policy. Immigration Triction, number 17 of 1901. An act to play king. Commonwealth, Australia. This act may be the act. This act means an act is a European opinion. A person of loathsome or dangerous character can pardon the prostitution of others to perform manual labour, a special skill in the trade ruling the Commonwealth. But the following are accepted. Force, the form, land, sea, any public vessel any port, a wife, children, writing under his hand. A person fails against this act. Dan Hogan's first collection is Secret Third Thing from Cordite last year. We reviewed it in the magazine.
Dan's work has been recognised by the Judith Wright Poetry Prize, the Vel Vellis Award and the XYZ Prize. My name is Dan Hogan and I'm recording from unceded Gadigal country. I'd like to extend warmth and solidarity to any First Nations people listening and acknowledge Elders past and present. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. It is a great honour to be shortlisted for the Peter Porter Poetry Prize. The poem, without giving away too much, wrestles with the concept of troubleshooting in the figurative and ontological sense. The poem seeks to embody the messy and deeply felt absurdity of admonishing neoliberal hammers while navigating work, interfacing with the vernacular of capital, and unmatching one's identity from the interests of capital. This poem is called Workarounds. We completed tasks while your computer was nonplussed. Never under any circumstances outgather the USB cables as they are known to the fossil record. Is anyone using this rubric? A strongly worded mop bites here. An epoch before us, an equivalent energy. The moral to the story is a horny talkathon, posting generally as a captive curation. A scared village buys now, pays later. Bags odorous gains. Inside everywhere is time. Skeletons made of other skeletons undergo workarounds. Withdraw alike. Troubleshoot the jig if it starts to look like your brain on internet, dollied blunt. Histories of conspiratorial dirtum loading. Uh-oh. A tiptoe extravaganza and grooves serious laugh lines. Deceives blessedly. The droplets collecting on necks are owed to the multi-purpose fog. Order an adapter while buff. Moths single out appliances to dent. Great magistrates are coming your way. The depth of a field is a streaming service. Who humours the non-electric fence? Is it you who licks it clean? Resemble the viral. Property the essential. Outdo outcomes as opposed to going home on time. Plumb the blameless. Countdown to glitches. Spongelix when. Depolished chit-chat. Gut bucket sunrise. Lunch on the old roof fizzles out. You can fail the creek, but the bike... The bike is in the creek. Bestow little quizzes. Then the second moment of area. Clue. Sea to water federation of etc. crises. Surface a length of sing-song worseness. Refranchise exquisite doldrums. Swanky exits expect better. It is time for your next marathonic ache. Enrapture well, dear salad. And lots of mozzies. An existential kneecapping. Real windsock hours. Unhallowed visits from tricky miniatures clogged the month. Eventually, prescriptions. Entablature. Maximum research. Net-like grength. Big-headedly nod if you want to defragment. Re-evaluate persuasions over mild interludes. Up the revelry. Roster on fleetingness. Consult moments. Misallocate enthusiasm for stakeholders. Dream-eating Syracucus warm the pit. Indispensable attunements are down the hall. Minimalism is for jerk apologists. According to resorts, the cement world is everything a unit of productivity could want. Put it this way, the forest wasn't November. Allegedly joyless, hard and infographic, repot survival news, favourite and unopened secret. Meredy Ortega's poems have appeared in the Times Literary Supplement, The Poetry Review, Mianjin, The Best Australian Science Writing 2023, and Scientific American. Meredy is from Western Australia, 
and now lives in Scotland. I was reading Other Minds by Peter Godfrey Smith and I was struck by his account of a solitary cuttlefish displaying intense colours in an orchestrated, almost musical way. It was elaborately signalling out to sea, with no apparent audience in sight. This description really resonated with me largely because I write poetry and there was this pang of recognition even at such a far remove, a far remove in so many ways. The more I read about cuttlefish, in fact I couldn't stop talking about them and I probably bored some people more than usual at the time. The more I read, the more I marvelled at their wizardry and mimicry, the Whitmanesque multitudes that they seem to embody and enact. And so in trying to get some of this across, I rolled several cuttlefish into one, and then I cast the lines into the shape of a cuttlebone by means of countless minuscule spacing manoeuvres in word. Whenever I wanted to change a line, it would start falling apart and need rebuilding, like a sandcastle with Sisyphean undertones. Although a good chunk of my childhood was spent a long way from the sea in the mining town of Tom Price, I have fond memories of beachcombing with my grandparents in Albany and of coming across these small-scale surfboards. I knew they were cuttle bones, but I didn't know what that meant, and so they were always just a little bit mysterious. Although I'm sure if someone had told me they were internal buoyancy devices, that would have made things a whole lot more mysterious. I'm Meredy Ortega, and this is my poem, Cuttle. Cuttle writes dippled starry lines to no one, signing all meanings meaning out to sea, surfs the internal board of itself inside the green room of everything. Ink storms, seals and sharks, hawking up, stained, spit, sputtered, its body, double, I, the double you. Crab mesmerizer, shrimp hypnotizer, midnight feast, tongue of teeth, Paris, Las Vegas of lights, riot of lies and the mop-faced truth, coral, sunlight, seaweed, welk. Cuttle's skin is dotted with metaphor, matador as bull, split-screen zebra, bloom, white square out of nowhere, flamboyantly buoyant and invisibly visible. Ah, the joy of pebbles, head to head in the burly billows, loaf skirt scrolling through meadows, dreaming clouds and opera, hiding eggs dyed sepia, turning into surge, Arm streamers, wave, waving off, wave, wave. Zhenana Vucic is a Bosnian-Australian writer, poet and critic, currently based in Berlin. Her writing has appeared in ABR previously, the Sydney Review of Books, Oberland, Mianjin and Australian Poetry Journal. Hello, this is Janana Vucic. I'll be reading my poem, Blagai, Mostar. I want to say to begin with that it's an honour to be shortlisted and to sit in the company of so many poets who I deeply admire. 
I also want to thank the judges and the whole team at Australian Book Review for reading my work and for all of your support of it. My poem is about Bosnia and the Bosnian War, which was a war of genocide against Bosnian Muslims. I don't have much to say about my poem. What I want to say is that during the war, although the images playing on international news clearly showed that what was happening was a genocide, although there were concentration camps and rape camps and massacres of entire villages and a siege on Sarajevo that went on for years, and although the whole world was watching this happen, the international community did nothing to help us. In fact, in the UN safe area Srebrenica, Dutch-backed UN soldiers stepped aside and let Serb forces murder over 8,300 men and boys. I bring this up because the international community is once again standing aside and letting a genocide happen. According to the Euromed Human Rights Monitor, Israel has killed over 20,000 Palestinian people in Gaza, including over 8,500 children. And Palestinians across the occupied territories are being taken hostage by the state, attacked and murdered. We cannot allow another genocide to happen while we watch. We must take action for a free Palestine, for a permanent ceasefire, for an end to the apartheid regime, and for an end to the occupation. My poem is about Bosnia and about returning. I want to dedicate it to the people of Palestine. May you too find your way home. Blagai, Mostar. The sky was crumbling, so full of sun it burnt at the edges and hit the cracked earth of my aunt's garden in waves. It was a summer dense with figs splitting flesh on the tree. Pomegranates had burst open against the concrete drive, spilling their insides. On the steps, red chilies drying in neat rows on a wet karania she had made herself. Bundles of herbs. Time for chai and sage to cure a sore throat. A tidy line of orthopedic shoes, his and hers, a pair on each step. Months before the lilac had been in bloom, the forsythia. We had walked around the garden breathing them in. My aunt pointing to her silver beet, her trellised beans, zucchini ripening against the soil. Neat rows of carrot and potato. The apple and cherry trees had just shrugged off their blossoms. There had been elderflower juice. Today my aunt has cooked with a bountiful harvest. Spirals of cheese and spinach rolled in a pastry so thin you can see the new moon through it. Quarter chunks of tomato and cucumber dressed in oil. Spring onions and yogurt. A loaf of fresh yellow bread. There's a watermelon cooling in the river for dessert. Beside it too. Plums, persimmons, ripe fruits scattered across the ground to be fetched after the meal. Inside, baked apples stuffed with walnuts and fried dough soaked in sugar. We are waiting for my uncle, gone fishing. If he's lucky, my aunt will fry a river trout or two, lightly, with a little flour, a little salt, skin on and crispy. My uncle will make his same jokes, needling my kind aunt with her plum soft heart. Take this one away with you, he'll tell me. She's no good. Just look at all this food she hasn't made. In the war, almost my lifetime ago, my aunt took her children in her arms and crossed the Barebone Mountains to our house. 
clothes had become a waiting grave. My uncle arrived every three weeks, a two-day hike each way. Limping, he wore a trail into the stone earth to find her, to sit in her weather for three days. Alhamdulillah, my aunt said. Well, where have you been? My uncle replied. Then he was gone. Then, as now, my aunt filled our plates, palachinka and ushtipsi when there was flour, pickled cabbage, stewed pears, bean soup stretched for weeks. My mother was a nurse in the village, and in the evening the sisters sat together, drinking coffee when there was some, cracking walnuts between their palms, waiting for the men to come home. Take this one with you, my uncle jokes. But he would follow. He knows the way. Above us, the old fort looms its jagged teeth across the mountain. After coffee, we will walk to its base, picking blackberries and water mint along the way, then stand on the cast-dip lip overlooking history. The Tekia, where old Sufi clerics chanted Dekir, and where the mountain splits itself open to send the green buna swelling past the house. They say that after his death, a great cleric had his body buried in seven tombs across the Balkans, choosing always small towns, out-of-the-way places, so that as pilgrims made their journey to honour him, they would spread the word that there are as many paths to God as there are breaths in a human body. My aunt knows all the names of Allah. They're like all our people. She says sabur, forbearance, most. My uncle is not a religious man, though he has been a pilgrim. Thanks for listening to the Australian Book Review Podcast. Join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, why not consider subscribing to ABR? Subscriptions start from just $10 a month for full digital access. Visit our website for more information. We'd like to thank Stacey Chan, who edits the podcast, as well as our contributors who take the time to read their articles and creative writing. And if you enjoy listening to the ABR podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes.